is risen from the dead. Further on in 1 Corinthians, from the passage that Ray read to us, Paul has another go at them uh, about the resurrection. And chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians talks all about the resurrection and how certain it is. And it takes aim at some people in the church in Corinth who are saying, it never happened. It's a legend. It's a beautiful myth. It's a fantastic story. We can, we can imagine it happening, but it didn't actually happen. <laughs> Nobody comes back from the grave. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this. But if it is pitched that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? <laughs> if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. When those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. We've just been celebrating something that happened over 2,000 years ago. And that might seem a bit bizarre to a lot of people. How can you be actually sure what did happen? How can you be sure who Jesus was? How can you be sure what he really said? Because we only have his words reported by other people. How can you say you know Jesus today? And how can you be certain that this one-off one, one event happened in history and somebody actually came back from the grave? Well, this year, as you know, in the evenings, we're looking at some of the common questions that people ask. And this is one of them. We had a go at it uh, a few weeks ago. But uh, as you know, we're spending two weeks on each of them. And in the first one, we're just sort of motoring around the bay, as it were, talking about the question and the evidence on one side or another. In the second week, we want to get practical and talk about how do you talk about this to somebody else who's asking those kinds of questions? So when somebody says, well, what do you really know about Jesus? Can you uh, give us a, a sensible answer? That's what tonight's about, because we did the first bit a few weeks ago. We never got onto the second bit, so here it comes to fill that in. You might remember, if you're here, in the first part, we talked about the basic Christian claim and said there are some things that we need to have evidence for. The resurrection's one of them, but that was a whole other subject by itself. And uh, oh, that night we looked at these things. Did Jesus actually live? Did he actually do the miracles, or is that just publicity? <laughs> Did it actually happen? Has it all been exaggerated? Did he actually teach the things that we think he taught? And, big one, did he actually claim to be equal with God? Now, when people question all of that, what we've tried to do with every question we've looked at so far is give you three reasons that you can come back with, three good reasons, just so you've got something to say to start a conversation. Because all too often, we just don't know what to say. And if you can just bear those three reasons, or whichever three reasons you find better than mine, <laughs> in mind, that at least gets you started. And I found, uh, as I say, that if you've got three good reasons, you will only ever use the first two. <laughs> because by that time, you'll be really engaged in the conversation, and things will just start to flow from there. And you just have to trust the Holy Spirit to take what you already know and, and make it a profitable conversation. So, usually in these talks, I've given the three good reasons to the end. But let's do it the other way around tonight. Let's talk about the three good reasons right up front. The first thing I would want to say to somebody who's questioning 
what Jesus was and saying, oh, well, we can't really know anything about him. It's all just super supposition, isn't it? You believe because you're pious and because you've been fed Bible stories in Sunday school, force-fed ideas as if they're true. When somebody says that kind of thing, I think the first point that you've got to make is Jesus really did exist. And the data about him is reliable. The Gospels are not just full of myths and fairy stories. Uh, it, about a hundred years ago, people certainly did think that in, in, in many influential circles. Uh, great theologians would say we can't know anything about Jesus because it's all mythological. But since round about the end of the Second World War, scholars have started to regain courage and say, no, actually, we do know more stuff than we thought we did. These Gospels are not as unreliable as we thought they were. Luke, especially, is a brilliant historian. We can reconstruct an awful lot about Jesus. Whoa, this is exciting. And so in the scholarly world, the whole thing has changed. But because the scholarly world is usually ahead of what people out there, you know, understand in, in, in the rest of the world, scholars are getting more excited about what we can know about Jesus. Ordinary people say, oh, well, it could all still be fairy stories. Oh, we don't know. Nobody knows anything, really. And that, that's a shame because Jesus really did exist. You might remember last time we talked about uh, Richard Bauckham and his uh, fantastic book a few years ago called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses about the way in which in the first generation of Christians, immediately after the death of Jesus, there were people who were given a special role and specially honoured in the early church all over the Mediterranean because they had been there. And their job as the eyewitnesses was simply to correct people when they came up with false ideas about Jesus. And uh, if Bochum's idea about them is true and there's every likelihood that it is, then they are one reason why Lots of stories may have, have proliferated in those days and we can see the evidence for them in the, the heretical writings that have been left behind, but they never affected the faith of the church. And the church kept on believing the story as they'd been told it right from the start because there were people there who said, I was there. I know what it's like. So the early Christians opposed any attempt to change the stories. And it stayed the same way that it was from the start. And the, the documents we've got, copy after copy after copy, show how they resisted bringing any changes, any differences into the whole thing. And so even secular scholars today, and we said this again last night, excuse me if I'm repeating myself, but it's good to, to bring us up to date because it was a few weeks ago and you may have forgotten what we said that night or not been there. And uh, so even nowadays, secular scholars, people who are not Christians, will say, yes, Jesus really existed and we can know a bit about him. Take, for instance, uh, 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 this, this guy, Bart Ehrman, uh, an American New Testament scholar who was a Christian and lost his faith as an academic, but has clung on to the idea that Jesus really did exist. And he says this, there are several points on which virtually all scholars of antiquity agree. Jesus was a Jewish man, known to be a preacher and teacher, who was crucified in Jerusalem during the reign of the Roman Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judah, Judea. This is the view of nearly every trained scholar on the planet. You couldn't have said that a hundred years ago, but more and more uh, you can say that confidently. And uh, Bart Ehrman, con uh, who was annoyed by the, the way in which people were making up all sorts of flim-flam about Jesus, actually wrote a book a couple of years ago called Did Jesus Exist? Just to make the case, although he's not a Christian himself, for the historic reality of Jesus. And he said, it was a surprise to me to see how influential mythicists are. Historically, they've been significant, and in the Soviet Union, in fact, the mythicist view was the dominant view. And even today, in some parts of the West, parts of Scandinavia, it's a dominant view that Jesus never existed. But in his book, Ehrman Marshall's all of the evidence proving the existence of Jesus. And it's powerful stuff, saying, although I don't believe in him, I'm a historian, and I've got to admit that the story is substantially true.
So Jesus really did exist, and the data is reliable. We know we can trust the Gospels. We did a whole bit on, you know, what you can teach out of the Bible or not uh, a few weeks ago. And so if you, you, you need some more evidence on that one, do go to the tape. It's there on the website. And uh, um, we have never been more sure that the stories about Jesus stand up to historical scrutiny. So that's your first one. Second thing, though, if the data is reliable, then you cannot deny that Jesus made staggering claims about himself. If the Gospels give us a picture of Jesus the way he was and the way he used to talk, then he did genuinely claim to be something more than any other human being. People often say, well, how can you know what Jesus really said? Because it could all have been changed. There's a website called Cora, which I've mentioned before now, where people can send in their questions and other people who pose as experts will try to answer them. And uh, somebody wrote into Cora a little bit recently saying, how can we be sure that the statements of Jesus in the Bible actually were made by Jesus? And uh, a fellow called Martin Palmer, who I know nothing except he calls himself, he calls himself inquiring mind, and it says this, everything that we know as what Jesus said is in fact some version of what someone else said he said. The logic is simple. The first recorded written mention of his name in any context wasn't until 60 years after he died, and the first gospel was not written until 70 years after he died. Now, I would contest those numbers, and so would a lot of academics, but that's another issue. So, by definition, everything we think we know about what he said is somebody else's version, or, to an unknown extent, just plain made up. And so, you see, you could say, well, because it's not written down at the time and it wasn't written down by Jesus himself we don't even know how well he could write then it's possible that the whole thing is touched up a little bit or perhaps even invented in large chunks but it's not that easy to say that do we know what Jesus taught well one of the things we said last time again was this that nobody else in history ever taught like this I mean this is just the most brilliant mind to come out of a Jewish background for 700 years and the stories he told, the way he put things, the ideas he, he presented in such an arresting way, you won't find anything in the writings of the rabbis. And we've got pretty good records of, of lots of them from shortly after Jesus' time. You won't find anything that's a par for the intellectual brilliance of Jesus Christ. And so if he didn't say those things, somebody else must have made them up. And that person who made them up <laughs> must have been an even more brilliant person than Jesus himself to invent somebody who would say those things. So it seems like the simplest answer is, yes, a very original and creative mind did say things that had never been said before. It's got to be Jesus. Also, we said we made this point last night. Joachim Jeremias, who was a German scholar earlier on in the 20th century, said, hey, wait a minute. Jesus didn't speak Greek, did he? The New Testament's written in Greek, but Jesus spoke Aramaic. That was his normal language. Well, he did speak Greek. Everybody in those days spoke a variety of languages. But Jesus spoke Aramaic around Galilee. Translate the sayings of Jesus in the Bible back into Aramaic. We get them written in Greek. But if you translate them back, what you find is they have a sort of funny balancing, sing-song kind of rhythm. Lots of alliteration, the same words used again and again, in a way that makes them very easy to memorise. And Jeremiah says, from what we know, that is exactly the way that rabbis used to teach in those days. And so if these, these things, these incredible new things that nobody's ever said before, are also said in that way, then when you put them into our day, you are hearing the speaking voice of Jesus himself. 
It's not all made up. It's not brought in by anybody else. It's there, right in the text that we have. A third point you can make is that people started copying the text very early. We have more manuscripts of the New Testament than any other book written at that time, by thousands. And those manuscripts didn't just appear. They were all copied by Christians all over the Mediterranean who wanted to preserve the words of Jesus and the stories about Jesus. And we know that uh, because there was such a, a big copying industry so early, people were concerned to get every word of the manuscript right every time. And they, they looked at one another, they checked with one another, they made sure they had it absolutely correct. There are still mistakes in just about every copy we've got because they were only human. But nonetheless, the attention they gave to getting it right means that you, you couldn't bring myths and fairy stories and false ideas into it. It's there. So Jesus really did say those things. So you hit the big question, don't you? Did he really claim to be God? And we said last time, well, the Gospels are pretty clear about it. <laughs> again and again, you get direct statements of Jesus that make it absolutely certain. We talked about four last time. He says, before Abraham, oops, too far. Before Abraham was, I am, and I am was the sacred name of God. Even he take it on your lips was forbidden to Jews in Jesus' day because I am was such a holy name. So if they were reading the Bible uh, in the synagogue, for instance, and they came to a passage where the word I am appeared as the name of God, they would always say Adonai, the Lord, just so that they wouldn't be taking a, a holy name on their imperfect, sinful lips. And here's Jesus, not only taking the word on his lips, but claiming to be identical with I am. And the Jews certainly understood what he was doing. We'll talk more about that next Sunday morning, but that's another issue. So, Jesus called himself again and again the Son of Man. And in Daniel chapter 7, you find a Son of Man in one of Daniel's visions going right up into heaven and being received at the right hand of God and given all sorts of power and authority, equal to God, the, the Ancient of Days himself. He, Jesus said, the Father is in me and I am in him. And uh, he made it clear he had a special relationship with the Father, God, that nobody else did. He also said, he talked about God as my God and your God. Funny phrase to use, isn't it? Why didn't you just say our God? But clearly, Jesus was saying, I have a different kind of relationship to God, my Father, to the one that you have with God as your Father. I'm on a different kind of a level from where you are. He wasn't being arrogant. He was simply just stating, that's the way it all is. So, that's the, the, the second of the reasons. First, Jesus really existed. Second, if the date is reliable, the claim he made was unmistakable. It was arrogant if it wasn't true. It was that he himself was equal to God. And that, as we said last time, leaves you with just three options. And this is the point that all of these three facts, uh, facts are leading towards, I think. We called last time the great trilemma. A dilemma is when you go into the supermarket and say, yeah, which kind of... Uh, Yogurts, do I want, do I want Oikos or do I want Wooler? Mm, I don't know, one costs more but the other tastes creamier. Oh, I don't know. And, and, and that's a dilemma when you've got two choices and you're not sure which one to take. A trilemma is when you've got three choices. Like, oh, oh, three kinds of yogurt, this is getting really serious. And uh, a tri the trilemma with Jesus is that you've got three options and only three. Here's the way it works. Jesus was either mad, oops, hang on a second, or he was bad, or he was God. Now, there have been plenty of madmen who said, I am God. I've met some of them. My father used to, to do a lot of work in the Carstairs uh, Institution in Scotland, and, and that is the equivalent of Broadmoor in England, a state institution for the criminally insane. 
And my father went in there many times, well, he went in there uh, several times a week at one point. I used to go in with him a little bit and I'd talk to people there who would seem at first perfectly sane, but then they'd let something slip and you'd start to realise there was something wrong with them. And Jesus was never like that. He never had a word out of place. In fact, if you look at the records about Jesus, his words are sane and balanced. He wasn't somebody who said wild and weird and dramatic things. Sometimes people who are mad will, will do that kind of stuff and other people think, oh, it's mystical, he understands more than we do. But in the end, you realise they're mad. But Jesus' words were always sane and balanced. Second, nobody seriously suspected him of being mad. At one stage, in, in, in the Gospels, people who are listening to him, he's mad, dreaming, it's... and other people say, no, 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 these aren't words of a madman. It doesn't sound like that at all. And you know, if people had suspected that Jesus was mad, they'd have gone away and left him and given him a wide berth in future. Why? Because Jews in those days believed that if you were mad, your brain had been touched by God. You were accursed in some kind of a way. And so mad people were thrust out of their homes and communities. If anybody had suspected that Jesus was insane, they'd never have listened to him for five minutes. What's more, Jesus lived under incredible pressure for three years, didn't he? Foxes of holes, birds of the nest, but the son of man, he said, has nowhere to lay his head. And he was pressed on every hand by enemies trying to trip him up. He had death threats, which meant he had to move around the place when, when uh, the times got too, too difficult for him. And there are all kinds of things that were weighing in upon him day by day, and yet he never flipped, never went haywire. He never lost his cool. Jesus always knew what was going on. There is no way that anybody can seriously look at the presentation of Jesus in the gospel and say, ha, 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 he was insane. No way. So if he wasn't mad, perhaps he was bad. Perhaps he was a con man. See, sometimes people say, uh, I am God because he's mad. And I've met some of them, I am God. Yesterday I was in the eighth and tomorrow I'll be a cabbage, but today I'm God. And you can soon tell that they're mad from just from the way they talk. Jesus wasn't like that. Sometimes people claim to be God because they're bad. I used to work a lot with cult members um, back many years ago when cults were big in this country. And uh, I still get Christmas cards from a Scientologist sometimes, which is touch. touch. Um, but uh, there are religious cults all over the place where the leader claims to be somebody super special, often even hints at being divine himself. Sun Myung Moon, for instance, the leader of the Moonies many years ago, he claimed that he was the second coming of Jesus. He didn't say it quite out loud, but everybody in the movement recognised that there's something divine about him. And sometimes that's because you're a con man, and Sun Myung Moon certainly was, but I'm not here to talk about him tonight. Was Jesus that way? Was Jesus just on the main? Well, first of all, he stood to gain nothing from what he was doing. He just got opposition a lot of the time. People were impressed by his personality. They loved the miracles. They loved the teaching and the stories. But the claim he was making was just too much for many of them to handle. So if you were trying to sell yourself to the people of Israel, you would not tell a story like that. It was calculated to push them away. So Jesus stood again from the claim he was making. Second, here we're talking about a man who taught about truth and honesty in a way that nobody ever had done in that culture since the days of the Old Testament. And Jesus' teaching is incisive and real and true, and it's all about honesty. Wouldn't it be amazing if the man who probed more deeply in the truth and reality than anybody else in his day turned out to be a fake as well? It's just not possible. It's, not, it's, it's just not a possibility. And third, and this to me is a clincher, he kept up his claim even when it would cost his life. See, if Jesus was a con man, I think once the game was up, 
he would have crumbled. He would have confessed. He'd have done anything to stay alive. Okay, okay, I'm not God. I confess. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you now. I'll sign any statement you want. I'll, I'll sell my story to the news of the world. Well, not now. Not, not, no news of the world. But uh, I'll sell myself. I'll make, I'll make a podcast and uh, confess everything. Just let me live. Jesus never did that. He went to his death stubbornly proclaiming that he was God. Even when he stood to gain nothing from it any longer. So if Jesus wasn't mad, and Jesus wasn't bad, <laughs> that leaves your non-Christian theorist with a problem, doesn't it? If you can trust the evidence, and if Jesus said those things, he has to be mad, or bad, or potentially God. Now that might get you into some interesting uh, concentra- uh, conversations. Jesus really existed, and the dates are reliable. If the dates are reliable, he made staggering claims about himself, and so you a trial him up. <laughs> so, Another thing I've been doing is talking about what key Bible passages you need to know. Because it's always good to back up your arguments with Scripture. Sometimes people think, oh, if I pull out my Bible, I think, oh, Bible bash out 100 yards, get out of here, clear the building. But people don't actually do that in my experience. Because most people have never had the Bible explained to them in terms they can understand. And so if you offer to show somebody a passage in the Bible that backs up your point, often they'll be curious and say, yeah, go on then, show me. What they don't like, of course, is people quoting random verses and hitting them over the head with, with things which uh, criticise them, moral or whatever else, um, when they don't even understand what you're talking about. But when you explain the Bible to them, that can make an enormous difference. Because the Bible says, doesn't it, that God's word doesn't return to him void. And often when people hear a few words of scripture, it has a, most, a more direct impact on them when they understand it than any of your clever arguments. So never be scared to use the Bible. <laughs> and uh, what key Bible passages do you need to know if you're going to answer questions on this kind of issue? I think one definitely is John chapter 14. That's one of those passages. There are lots of others, and you may have a better one to suggest than this, but this is one that I like because it comes from the Last Supper when Jesus is, is, is talking to his disciples. The penny has dropped that Jesus is in earnest about saying, I'm going to leave you, I'm going away. And they're starting to say, well, what exactly is your relationship to the Father then? So that's one. The second would be Philippians chapter 2. There's a great hymn in Philippians 2, which the Apostle Paul quotes. He may have written himself. It's more likely that it's that had been sung in the church in Philippi and other places. Very familiar. One of the ancient Christian hymns right from the days when Jesus uh, had risen again. Because we know that Philippians can't have been written any later than AD 62. So 30 years after Jesus' death, you've already got churches, probably all over the place, because Paul is quoting something that's well known, who are singing about Jesus as God and man at the same time. So pretty clearly, it was something, wasn't a, a rumour that was made up by Christians many years later, it was something that was part of the story from day one. And the third passage I would use is 2 Peter chapter 1. Because that shows just how in earnest the Christians were, the early Christians, about this whole stuff being true and real and actual, just the way that Paul is defending in 1 Corinthians 15. They really believed it. They weren't free to invent fabrications and fancy stories and things like that. It had to be true. So let's just look at those three passages for for a second. First of all, the John 14 one. This is the last letter. And it... Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? They're all confused about Jesus saying he's going away. So, and Jesus says, you, you know the way. And you know, we 
don't. We don't know where you're going or anything about it. And so Jesus answers him, famous verse, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He's saying, you see me, you see the Father. Now, there's no way you can read those words and believe Jesus really uttered them and say, yeah, yeah, but he was just a man and his words have been misinterpreted. There's no way you can take those any other way. It goes on. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. You see Jesus, you see God. There are no other ways there that you can seriously interpret those words. So that's another passage that seems to be quite, quite strong to use. And the word that I find useful is this one from 2 Peter chapter 1. You remember possibly that say, a few weeks ago we were talking about the transfiguration of Jesus when he took three disciples, Peter, James and John, up a mountain uh, in, in, in the very north of Israel and uh, he was transfigured before them. He just started glowing. His robes became super white. It was dazzling. And, and two figures from the Old Testament appeared with him. If, if you haven't, again, the talk is on the website. But uh, um, Peter was one of those. And in Second Peter, as an older man, towards the end of his life, because not long after he'd written this letter, he was, he was crucified upside down. Peter wrote to those people whom he knew in different places who were Christians, saying, listen, it's all true, folks. And he says this. Uh, sorry, no, 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 I'm not. <laughs> ah, I forgot. Philippines, we'll go back there in a moment. This is what he says. We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my son whom I love, whom I am well pleased. That's what happened at the Transfiguration. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And so Peter says, listen, till the day I die, I'll keep on reminding you about these things. This is true. This actually happened. This is no myth. Jesus really was shown in glory before us. And there was no way we could mistake the fact that this is somebody who has a connection to God that no other human being ever had. Now, I've missed out Philippians, so let's go back to that one. Philippians chapter 2, Paul quotes his hymn, and he says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And he starts quoting, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now that, that passage there is very interesting because it uses the same phrase twice, in the form of. And so it says Jesus was in the form of God. And then it says he, was, he made himself, he became human. He was in the form of a servant, a normal human being. And there are two words in Greek you can use for form. And one of them 
is the word that's used for the mask that an actor used to wear in those days. You know, in Greek drama, they used to have masks with tears when they were showing uh, sorrow and grief and that sort of stuff, and masks with a happy, smiley face when they were showing joy. And so actors would wear masks so that even once people in the amphitheatre could work out what was going on in the play. And that one of the words for in form of is the word for the actor's mask. And so it's a word that means something that looks one way on the outside, but actually on the inside is something quite different. I mean, the actor acting the play may have a smiley mask on, but he might have just, just got terminal cancer or something and he feels miserable inside. So on the outside, he's laughing. Inside, horrendous. Now that word is not the word that's used in Philippians 2. The word that's used in Philippians 2 means something that looks the same on the outside as it actually is inside. So when it says that Jesus was in the form of God, it doesn't mean that Jesus looked like God. It means that Jesus was God through and through. And when it says he was in the form of a human servant, that means he was human through and through. And so this passage tells us both things about Jesus. He was truly God and truly man at the same time. So that passage shows that uh, from the start, that is what the Christians got about Jesus. And they claimed it and they used it uh, in some of the earliest letters we have from one Christian congregation to another. They knew that Jesus was a human being, but they also knew that Jesus was God himself. So all of those passages, I think, are useful. And this passage goes on, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, boss over the entire universe, to the glory of God the Father. And so from the very start, Christians were making this claim about Jesus. And uh, uh, then, as I say, after that, you've got Second Peter and, and, and Peter's words as well. Now, one last thing to say tonight, and before we just pray and end the service, that, that is, we've also talked about working on your return. <laughs> because the way you come back at people is important. It would be possible for uh, somebody to say, oh, you can't really know anything about Jesus, and then you go into your three-question routine, <laughs> or whatever you do, and they uh, huh, okay. Yeah, but what about Christians and homosexuality? Or something else, you know. What about all these church leaders who are making so much money? And they change the subject to get off the fact that you are getting uncomfortably close to home. So it's, it's important not just to be able to answer the question, but to answer it in such a way that you go on the offensive. <laughs> and you're able to challenge them as a result. What kind of return could you make? Well, that will very much depend on you and your own style and things like that. Here are three things that I've used in the past anyhow when people have, have asked me this question. I give him the answer, best way I can. Say, does that make sense? Well, yeah. And then I say one of these things. First, if Jesus was a smith or a con man, how do you explain his impact? If you're saying that Jesus might not have been the son of God, that maybe it's all publicity and maybe it's a story that grew up afterwards, how do you explain the fact that, and here's another slide we showed last time, that uh, sorry, in the second century, 100 to 150 years after Jesus died, this is what the map of the Mediterranean looks like. Christians all over the place. Every little red dot on that map of the Mediterranean shows a place where churches have sprung up. And some are massive churches as well. How did somebody who was mythical have that kind of impact? Or how did somebody who was a con have that kind of impact? I mean, think about some of the great psychopaths of history. Hitler. He was going to build a Reich that would last for a thousand years. How long did he last? 
about a decade, wasn't it? And that was it. And he was gone. And his name stinks in history forever after. How did Jesus manage to build something that just conquered the world in the way that it did, unless he was he claimed to be? That at least will get the conversation continuing, won't you? And uh, uh, we, we said Jesus made explosive impact on the world right from the start. And if you go on a little bit, uh, you see, uh, after 300 AD, all of those areas that are orange can become more Christian than not. And after th- another 300 years, all of those areas that are uh, uh, brighter yellow, they have been Christianized as well. So it's been a tremendous success story, and there's never been anything like it in history. So it's a good question to ask, isn't it? Another question you could ask, though, is this. What other credible hope do you have for peace between humans and better lives for all? Christianity has inspired all sorts of social changes over 2,000 years. People who have claimed to be Christians haven't always got it right. But the way that Christianity has changed society over 2,000 years needs to be acknowledged and remembered. Nowadays, a lot of people uh, seem to be spreading the story that, oh, well, it all started with the ancient Greeks. (laughs) Or it all started with the Enlightenment in the 18th century. That's when we started becoming civilised. And I was really interested recently to, to find that Tom Holland, who's perhaps the best historical writer in Britain at the moment, he's a, a professional historian, he's written some blockbuster books which have sold a million, made him very famous. Tom Holland is making uh, videos like this one. This is just one of, of a few that he's got on, on YouTube at the moment. Why I changed my mind about Christianity. Tom Holland was br- brought up to go to church in an Anglican church-going family. And he talked about it in some of his books, and the, at first he's quite dismissive about it. Of course, of course, I come from a Christian background like everybody else, of course, I've, I've grown out of that. that yeah. and, and, and over the last couple of years, he's come to realise, as he says in this particular lecture and several others, how much Western civilization still depends on Christianity. He said, even if you look at movements like communism and Nazism, they would not be possible if it were not for the Christian background of emotions that's been there in society for 2,000 years. And he says, if you take Christianity away from Western culture, you're left with absolutely nothing. It's just incoherent. And so Holland has now become a Christian, <laughs> and his whole historical right has changed quite a bit because he said, you know, I used to think the ancient Greeks had done it all for us. It's not true. The more I look at history, the more I see the impact that Christianity has made. If Jesus was not the Son of God, what happens to Western culture? What other proposal have you got? What hope have we got? Unless Jesus is the Son of God. And the third one third, I would ask is simply this. If Jesus wasn't what the Bible says he is, he was, who on earth do you think he really was? <laughs> because I think if you start looking at the evidence, there is only one way that that evidence points. There is only one theory that holds water. And that is that God sent his Son into this world to die on the cross so that the whole of history and individual human lives could be changed through him. I cannot see any other way that you can read the evidence about Jesus other than that conclusion. No other theory fits all the facts. And so, what we've done tonight has been something that has been entirely right. For Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And Jesus Christ did die so that you and I could be transformed through him. So let's go out and tell people about that. Let's just pray together in our service, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to share the bread and wine together tonight. And as Ray said, it's, it's all too easy to come and just fit in to a service instead of re- recognising the enormous importance of it. And it's easy just to turn up, as he put it, 
rather than have any expectation or any sense of wonder or awe at the fact that we are engaging here with something that is historical and real and actual and has been for 2,000 years. That we stand in the footsteps of, of people who have celebrated this communion service in just the way that Jesus said they should, in an unbroken chain down to more than 20 centuries. And we thank you, Father, for all of those who have trodden this earth and have now gone to the reward, testifying to their belief that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God. And we just pray that you'll help us in the different possibilities we have of explaining this to people, to make sense, to communicate, and to get people excited about the fact that there is a possibility out there that their life can be changed by a Jesus who is not only living somewhere outside our physical reality, but once became part of that physical reality and bears his humanness into eternity. Someone who's still interested in every single one of us and who's able to save and, uh, and keep forever. Help us to make sense of those tremendous realities for people who need to hear them and give us the chances to do that. We ask for your namesake. Amen.